0: For those that don't know me, my name is Mike Minter. I uh, work here at Reston Bible Church. Uh, I do want to thank um, uh, Jason Van Dorsten and Jim Supp last week and Pete Ferrara for uh, not filling in, but doing a great job of preaching. Can we thank them for what they did? Great job. I'm going to give a quick... Mentor Minute this morning. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's just a time where I take one minute and share some things we don't often get a chance to talk about, maybe in a message. And that is this. Uh, it was about, I don't know how many years ago, Mike Myers on our staff gave a message in which he used an illustration of people laying on the beach watching other people surf. And the objective in his what his thoughts were was that everybody is part of the, that is in the body of Christ has been given a spiritual gift and is to use it. Too many people see people trying to get out to catch the wave, and they're getting banged around. But they eventually catch a wave, and it's a great ride. But watching people ride the wave is not the same thing as riding the wave. All of you that are truly in Christ have been given a gift, and that gift belongs to the body of Christ to be used. So, what, where, whatever your gift is, if you're not sure what it is, ask somebody that knows you well. They'll probably tell you, and then get yourself plugged in in some way. Doesn't even have to be an official way, but just some way to enhance the advancement of the kingdom of God. So trust you that you'll do that. And now I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44. Now, I am going to take some time this morning to review bringing us up to where we are so that you know all the players and what's taking place, and particularly if you happen to be visiting, you may not be as familiar with this story because we've been going through Genesis. And um, we are we've been looking at the life of Joseph recently. So let me back up a little bit and talk about some of the main characters because this account in chapter 44 and chapter 45 by some secular writers and authors consider this to be the greatest narrative ever written from secular people. Not the greatest story ever told in the sense of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, but an actual narrative. It is moving, it is poignant, it is earth shattering in many respects. And at the end, at the end, it forces everybody if they're looking carefully at this narrative to make a decision, a very hard decision, but a very freeing decision. So let me back up. God came to Abraham in chapter 12 and said that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All right? Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob has been favored by his mother. That favoritism, much like Jim Supp said last week when he was talking about the law of the harvest, sowing and reaping, was sown into his life. He carried that favoritism in to one wife, Rachel. Keep in mind, he had two wives, Rachel and Leah, but he had these 12 sons through four different women, okay? That favoritism multiplied throughout throughout the time and and the ages and ends up in the story that we're looking at right now. Because Rachel was his favorite wife, And the two children that come from Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. There was favoritism there. And this caused huge problems with the other brothers. They wound up hating Joseph because of that favoritism. If you go all the way back to chapter 37, you see this very clearly. Where it says his brothers hated him because his father had given him a coat of many colors. Well, what winds up happening is is that Joseph has a dream. And he dreams that his brothers are going to bow down to him. This is really important to grasp this. And they hated him all the more because of that dream. So what they wind up doing is they wind up selling him into slavery. And while he's in slavery, he ends up, winds up in prison. He has a, a dream and he gets the prisoners release him or mention to Pharaoh that this man knows how to interpret dreams. He goes to Pharaoh, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and now he's in charge and command of all of Egypt. And the dream was that it would be uh, seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So store up the food for the years of plenty. What we saw in chapter 42 was Jacob saying to his sons, go down to Egypt and buy grain. They get down to Egypt. Joseph spots these ten brothers and he goes, I know who they are. They don't know who he is. Perhaps a robe or beard or language, whatever. They don't know who he is, but he certainly knows who they are. And he says, you guys are spies. You didn't come down to buy grain. You're spies. No, we're not. We're not. We're all from one father. And, and, and we have a younger brother back home. Oh, really? Well, I'll keep one of your brothers hostage. You go back and bring your younger brother, Benjamin, back. And we'll see. They buy the grain. They pay in silver. Joseph makes sure that all the silver is put back in their sacks. On the way home, they discover the silver. At least one of them discovers it. When they get home, they realize that all the silver's been put back. Makes it look like they've stolen something. Now their conscience is being awakened. They think that God is trying to say something to them. And there's a little trajectory of how you see their conscience and a genuine move towards some kind of a repentance in the brothers. They get back in chapter 43. Jacob, their father, says, we're out of grain. Go back down and get some more grain. And they can't go back because Joseph said, unless you bring your brother, Benjamin, you'll never see my face again. Dad, we've got to bring Benjamin. I can't bear to lose Benjamin, please. I've already lost Joseph and I've lost Simeon. I can't bear to lose Benjamin. Sorry, Dad, we can't go back unless Benjamin comes with us. And Judah says, and I promise, I'll watch over him. I'll make sure he returns. Jacob eventually relents They go down, and Joseph ends up greeting them, and he has a lunch for them. He serves a lunch, and he serves five times as much to Benjamin as the others because now he sees an opportunity to place before the brothers a similar scenario that was placed before them when they sold Joseph into slavery because of jealousy over the fact that their father loved him more than the others. And now it's Benjamin, his whole brother, from the same mother. Will, will the brothers allow Benjamin to be stuck into slavery or not? And so he sets up this whole plan, and it's a very clever plan. So let's take a look. He's not interested in revenge, he's interested in repentance. Let's read the first six verses, and then we'll pray. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to look at this text and trust that our lives will be deeply impacted from it. And it's our greatest desire to see that you'll be the one who will receive all the glory. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, as I've been going through this uh, just over and over and over again, it's kind of interesting that we, we have the advantage of reading the account, we have the advantage of knowing what every player knows. And I started thinking about, as you really step into the story, and you've got to step into this story, you've got to see how everybody is viewing this, there are certain things that Joseph knows. There are certain things that Jacob knows. There are certain things the brothers know. But no one has the whole picture. No one's got the completed picture, but you and I do. We're able to see this. We know what's happened. We know the whole scenario. They don't. So I thought I would write down what each group knew or individual. Jacob, the father, knows the least. He knows the least of what's going on. He's been kept in the dark. And what he does know is not the truth. He knows Joseph is dead, who is actually very much alive and is governor of Egypt. He believes his son is dead because the brothers brought the coat of many colors, dipped it in blood and said, hey dad, uh, who does this belong to? It's my son, he's been torn apart by a wild beast. Then we read this, right? I, my thoughts, the brothers know they lied to their father about the death of Joseph. They know they sold Joseph into slavery. They don't know if he is dead or alive, even though they just had a meal with him. In chapter 43, their conscience is now being progressively awakened. They know they didn't steal the silver cup. Here's what Joseph knows. Joseph knows the most, but not everything. He knows these men are his brothers. He doesn't know what his brothers told Jacob as to why He, Joseph, was missing, but he does know that Jacob thinks Joseph was torn to pieces, which we'll see a little bit later on. Joseph knows his father is still alive, and he has a younger brother who is still alive. Very interesting. It's almost like a little chess match. Everybody's starting to move the pieces around, but nobody has the full story. Nobody knows what the chessboard completely looks like. And so God reveals this to us, and the beauty is us knowing what they don't know. And when you step into this, and you're going to see the emotion grow as we come to the end of this chapter, you're going to feel the emotion. And if you don't, your wood's wet, all right? It is time to feel something. This, this is a an, an very hard to even grasp, this story. But it's the storyline, and it's a turning point in, in all of history, this particular account. So let's take a look as we looked at the first, read the first few verses. We find that Joseph says to his servant, Put the silver back in their sacks and put the cup. And I'll explain this idea of this cup of divination a little bit later on. Put the cup back and put it in Benjamin's sack. They go. He says, Then go after them and find out where the cup is. And see who the guilty party is. Now he wants to find out whether the brothers will say, See you, Benjamin. Go on back to slavery. We're out of here. That's what he's hoping to find out. And his plan is, is, is absolutely amazing the way he has set this whole thing up. It's designed to parallel Benjamin's life with Joseph's life. And what will they do? They hated Joseph. Will they hate Benjamin? They hated Joseph because he was their father's favorite son. Now Benjamin is the favorite one. What will happen? Are they coming to repentance? Do they realize what they've done to him? And even as I was going over this this morning, something struck me that I would not thought of before. The coat and the cup. The coat that Jacob gives to Joseph, Joseph had nothing to do with it. But he was given, given to him. And it caused a lot of problems because of the partiality towards one son over the others. Benjamin doesn't know the cup is given to him. He has no idea. So neither are guilty, but both the coat and the cup play a major role, a major turning uh, turning point in the storyline. And this is just how God has written this out. There's also something else in here. You'll note note this. It says um, in verse 4, it says... They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? This idea of good and evil goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and plays all the way out to the end of Genesis when the most moving statement is made, when Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I cannot tell you how many layers are here that run all throughout Scripture, but it's usually in Genesis where things are are birthed. So we see this all the way throughout. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 9. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. He's, he's, they're they're, they're uh, trying to defend their integrity. They've already been through this once. They have brought, the, brought it back. So why would we steal silver or gold from my master's house? If any of your servants, listen to what they're saying, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become our Lord's slave. What a rash vow. And it's exactly what Joseph wanted. If anybody's got the cup, let him die. And the rest of us will become your slaves. Why would they say that? Because they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that nobody has the cup. They know they didn't steal the cup. But the cup has been planted in Benjamin's sack. And the coat and the cup play a huge role in the storyline in this narrative. And so they have now made this vow. And the beauty of this vow is they now have an opportunity to get rid of Benjamin. They could easily say, you know, whoever has had this, cup, this, he'll die. The rest of us can go on back home. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. Let's read 10 to 13. Very well then, He said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. What an opportunity for them to decide whether or not we're going to be like like, uh, the way we treated Joseph. Here's an opportunity for them to get rid of Benjamin. Verse 11, each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. What a perfect plot. They have said, who is ever caught with this will die and will become your slaves. And when the servant catches up with them, he starts from the oldest and works his way to the youngest. That's what they did when they served him lunch back in chapter 43. How does the servant know who's the oldest and who's the youngest? They've got to be so perplexed. What is going on here? And so the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. He is now the guilty one. At least it appears that way. He's had nothing to do with this. But here's where we have to step in and say to ourselves... Suppose you were one of the brothers. The servant of Joseph comes and says, Halt, let's find out. Somebody's taken, you know, the, my Lord's silver cup. Let's find out who it is. Ha, come on. They start with the oldest. Each They're sitting there thinking, He's wasting his time. We need, to, we need to get going back to Canaan. 11, 10, 9, 8. Finally get to Ben. <laughs> He's the kid. He didn't have anything. And there's the cup. But did you notice what it says? And they tore their clothes. And the reason they tore their clothes is because they are broken over the fact that Benjamin might die. They didn't care about Joseph. But you want to know who tore their clothes when Joseph was missing? When they took the robe and said, Hey, Dad, who does this belong to? after they had dipped it in the coat's blood. And their father said, surely he's been torn to pieces. And he tore his clothes. You see, all these little subtle storylines and layers that are all throughout this. And it's, it's literally infinite. And it plays itself all the way throughout the scriptures, over and over again. They tore their clothes, just as Jacob had done. And now it's showing a genuine love for Benjamin. Something they didn't have prior to this. Now let's take a look at verses 14 through 17. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. This is the third time they bowed down to him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out of divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have had the cup. Let me mention this issue of the cup of divination. Uh, To be involved in divination is to try to contact spirits and all that type of thing, which is totally forbidden in Scripture. So why would Joseph be involved in that? There's nothing that says he was. His servant was simply stated to them that my, my master can, can do this. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But Joseph is telling them, don't you know that I could do this? They're heathens. They would probably believe in this kind of thing. But I'll tell you why I really think he mentions this. I'll just tell you why, what I think. I think if he had have said, don't you know that I have an ability to interpret dreams, and God speaks to me that way? They might have thought, our brother told us that we would all bow down to him someday. He had dreams. He could interpret the dreams. This is Joseph. My opinion. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that's why he didn't say, don't you know? I can just pray, and the God of heaven will reveal this. He doesn't do it. He mentions divination. 18 to 20. Things are starting to heat up. Here we go. By the way, when you look at verse 16, um, when he says, uh, Judas says, What can we say about our innocence and our he says our innocence, innocence that we didn't take the cup, and our guilt, that we know we've done something to Joseph, but they don't know that that's Joseph. You can see this, this transition of the change and repentance that's taking place. 18 to 20 then judah went up to him and said please my lord let your servant speak a word to my lord do not be angry with your servant though you are equal to pharaoh himself now before we dive too far in to 18 to 20 this is when judah steps up to the plate so to speak and makes a plea to joseph though he doesn't know it's joseph Just keep that in mind. He doesn't know who he's speaking to, but he's making a plea to Joseph not to have to go through with this plan, and we'll see what Judah himself actually decides to do and what he's pleading for. So we read in verse 19, my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father? Now he's going to review previous conversations they've had with Joseph. Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. His father loves him. The brothers know that Jacob loves Benjamin more than he loves them. They know that he loves Joseph more than he loves them. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. His brother is dead. Here is Joseph. And Joseph for the first time is hearing that he's dead. I'm not dead. I'm the governor. He's got to shut up. The plot hasn't gone to its end yet. He's got to keep keep control. As Judah is telling him, you're dead. He's not dead. And you've got to feel, you have to feel the emotion of Joseph thinking, what did they ever even tell my father happened to me? What are they feeling about my being dead? Only previously it said, "And and our brother is no more. Now they're saying, he's dead. You've got to step into into Jacob's life. You have to step into Joseph's life. You have to step into the brother's life. Benjamin, you've got to feel all of this. You can't just read through this and check it off like, well, I've had my devotions. This this story is coming right after your heart and mine. And I'm going to make you suffer just as much as I did going through this. Because we haven't gotten to that part yet. And it's hard, all right? But that's the theme. It's coming to a climax. It's coming to a close in which it forces every person to read this story to say, hmm, I wonder how I would have reacted in this situation. Verse 21 through 26. Then you said to your servants, he's still repeating everything back to to, to Joseph, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to you, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what you had said. Verse 25, then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Remember? Remember? Joseph, remember my Lord? Remember Master? You said that if we go back, we have to bring Benjamin back. We've, we have to do it. He's, he's reminding him of, of all that he said. He still has no clue. This is Joseph. All he knows is he's the governor of the land. All he knows is he holds all the cards. And he can do whatever he wants. And... As you continue to read, you begin to feel. There's a certain emotion that's beginning to develop here. And it's very, very powerful. 27 to 29. Your servant, my father, speaking of Jacob, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, Rachel, his favorite wife. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. Verse 29, if you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Repeating Jacob's words. Now, here is something that I think is fascinating. He is saying how Joseph supposedly died. My father believes that Joseph was torn to pieces. He doesn't reveal the whole story of how that had happened. Joseph must have wondered over these 22 years. I went out looking for my brothers because my father told me to go find them. And I never came back. I wonder what they told my father. What did they tell my father happened to me? And now he knows for the very first time. Surely he's been torn to pieces. He's hearing that he's thought he's dead. He's hearing how supposedly he died. I don't know how he's holding it together. I do not know how he's holding it together. And of course in chapter 45, he cries. But he's, he's, he's in tremendous pain here. He's got to be. You imagine sitting here dialoguing with, with, with Judah And hearing all these stories that you didn't know about and knowing what they're feeling and what the father's feeling, oh, if Benjamin doesn't come back, my father will die. He's already lost Simeon and he's lost Joseph. My father will die. And he's playing to Joseph's emotions, certainly to some degree. He's making a very, very strong plea. Now, 30 to 32, we read this. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave. Your servants guaranteed the boy's safety, my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. So here's Judah saying to his father, I'll take care of Benjamin. I'll bring him back. I promise. He's making a promise to his father. And now he's telling Joseph what he had promised to his father. And now, the crux of all of history is in these next two verses. 30 to 30, 32 to um, 34. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. I'd say there's a change in this guy's life. But we need to review his life for a second. We need to go back and take a good hard look at his life. Let me remind you of several things. Number one, Judah, as well as the other brothers, hated Joseph. He's sitting here talking to the man that he hated with a passion because Jacob had shown favoritism to Joseph and not the other brothers. The reaping, the sowing and the reaping is taking place, as Jim mentioned last week. That's what's exactly happening here. Secondly, he hated his father, Jacob. Does it say that? No. It's as clear as it can be. How could you possibly go up to your father and show the coat of many colors dipped in blood, making your father believe that Joseph was torn apart by a wild lion or wild animal of some kind? Why would you do that? He despised his father for the favoritism. And it's all coming back. It's all being stirred. Third, he's a liar. He was a liar, Judah. Judah, along with the brothers, when they showed their father the coat of many colors, and their father said, surely Joseph has been torn apart by a wild animal, they let him believe that. They let him believe that lie. He hated Joseph, he hated his father, and he's a liar. He's also a murderer, or certainly a potential one. Because when they get Joseph, they want to kill him. They throw him into a pit. But Judah's the one that says, Ah, let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. We'll get some money for him. And while they're selling him into slavery, they're having lunch, which I've mentioned several times. That's how calloused his heart is and his brothers. Hated his brother. Hated his father. A liar. Calloused a murderer. Sitting there having lunch while his brother is getting ready to be sold into slavery. And then in chapter 38, he finds a prostitute along the road. Only it's not a prostitute, it's his daughter in law. And he has a relationship with her. Now, liar, immoral, this is a wicked man. What do you see here? A completely new human being. Something has happened. Something has taken place. A few thoughts. He knew his father loved Benjamin more than he loved him. Judah knew that he knew that Benjamin was the favorite. He knew that if he didn't return home, his father would feel sad, but not like if Benjamin didn't return home. So he knows that. He knows that. And from a human perspective, he has every right to feel badly about that, he even maybe be bitter angry about that from a human perspective. He could have taken revenge on his father by saying, Hey, Benjamin, tough luck that you got caught with the cup. We're going home. You're going into slavery. And Joseph played this parallel theme here of his life and Benjamin's to see whether or not they would do that or whether or not they would say, We're not going there again. God is dealing with us. He's dealing with our conscience. He's dealing with the the very depths of our soul. He knew his father would suffer. Huh. Think there's a change? Hey, Dad, whose coat did this belong to? Too bad you're suffering. Too bad you believe your son is dead. We don't care. We don't care. Because of the favoritism you've shown him and you've never showed us. You're a bad father. Now, how can I let my father... Go through this pain. Something's happened. Something has happened. He dies to self-pity. He dies to hatred. He dies to revenge. He dies to bitterness. All of those things he dies to. I'm done. The crop has come in. The law of the harvest. I'm done. We're going to sow some new seeds. I'm not living like this any longer. So what is the point of the the narrative of the story. For us to go, wow, isn't that nice? That sure is cool. You know what it does for me? And I think it's designed to do for all of us. Who is it that we are holding hostage in our mind that offended us? Who is it that we're still bitter towards? Angry that we haven't released it? That's the story. This is a gospel message. That's what this is. This is the power of the gospel to set somebody free. Judah has finally come to the realization I'm not living like this any longer. I'm not going to blame other people for how things have turned out. It's me. And I w- I'm willing to take the place of Benjamin because my life has been dramatically changed. And you can't help but to say to yourself who in my life an employer, an employee, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend, whatever, that has not done well for you, and you've been hurt by, damaged by, wounded by, and the bitterness and the hatred and the anger is still there. Believe me, this raked my soul just over the coals. I kept going over it and going over it, and I kept saying to myself, would I do that? Benjamin, in, in some respects, is almost Judah's enemy, not purposefully, but the way the father treated him. And Judah says, let me take his place. Let me let go home. I'll take his place. I know he's the favored child. That's fine. I'm giving all that up. I'm done. I'm done with the anger and all the stuff that's eating my soul up. We have to ask ourselves, who do we blame for how we're turning out or have turned out? And it might even be your parents. It might be your parents because Jacob was not a good father, not by any stretch of the imagination. Caused a lot of problems in his kids. And yet, each child is still morally responsible for how they turn out. You can't say, I came out of a bad home, that's why I'm the way I am. So and so treated me, that's why I'm bitter. (laughs) There are parallel tracks in scripture on this one. We're held accountable for causing somebody to be bitter, but the person who's bitter is still morally responsible for how they handle that bitterness. I don't know how those two fit, but they do. They do. And you see it in this entire account here. It is time for all of us, all of us, to let go of the video that we play in our minds of the person that hurt us, or how we were raised, or this or that. It's time to let it go. And when I say let it go, I mean let it go in the power of the gospel. Time to see ourselves as the guilty party. Listen carefully. Time to see ourselves as guilty, but forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so when you look at somebody else and you say, look what they've done, do you know their story? Tagline I gave you a long time ago is this, if we knew their story, we might have more sympathy than anger towards them or judgment or bitterness, if you knew their story. You look at at Judah's story, he's got a rough life, but it doesn't excuse him. And he realized that. He's come to the place where he says, I can't use that as an excuse. But from a human perspective, from just a sheer human perspective, I can understand why he would be bitter And angry and immoral and everything else. But he's come to the end of that. And the real beauty is this. The real beauty is when you read this and he says to Joseph, let me take his place. I am willing to give my life so that others might live. Remind you of anyone? Remind you of a future account? Because the entire Bible speaks to this subject matter of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And that's why in Revelation 5.5, 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Is this an amazing story or what? Man, this is Amazing! It is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is just, it's, it's hard to even grasp. And we haven't, we, I've thrown out 90% of what I would like to say, but we're running out of time. There is so much more to the layers in this. And then people tell me, oh, this was written by a bunch of people sitting around a campfire. Give me a break. <laughs> you don't know your Bible if you think that. There, there, it, it, it never ends. It's absolutely never ending. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the good news that Judah is a foreshadowing, a type of Christ saying, I'll step forward and take your place. We're the guilty party. Jesus is the innocent one. Jesus takes our place so that we might be set free. That's the gospel. And if you're here today and you've never heard that, I'm here to tell you it's the greatest news in the world. That there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you come to Christ and you recognize that you are guilty as I have been guilty and am guilty. And that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, our shame, our guilt. Died and was buried and rose bodily from the grave. When you put your faith, your confidence in that, you pass from death unto life. You are given the very righteousness of Christ himself placed to your account. And that's exactly what Judah is saying here. You all go home. I'll take his place. And this is all throughout Scripture. If you've never put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. And for all of us, I strongly encourage you to take the challenge that is here and say, who am I bitter towards? Who haven't I released from my mind? Who am I trying to get revenge give it up. It doesn't work. It just sows more and more seeds that continue to go down through the ages. And that's exactly what's happened here. Only somebody has finally decided, enough's enough. I'm done. And that's the message of the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I, 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 I don't know how to make it any clearer, And should there be anyone here, any number of people here that have never come to the realization that they stand before a holy God guilty with no way through their religion, their good works, of ever saving themselves, they must come repentant, broken before you and admitting that they need salvation that is found only in Christ. And today would be the day they would call upon him that they might be saved. And Lord, for all of us, all of us, We know of people that have hurt us, wounded us, and we hang on to it. It's to no avail. And so I pray today that today would be the day of complete release of that. Be set free. Now, Father, I pray that you would bless and encourage us throughout this week. Bring us back safe to hear the rest of this story. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.